Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Sat on a tree Down a down Hey down a down They were as black As they might be With a down One of them Said to his mate Where shall we Our breakfast take With a down Dairy 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 Down down Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Three Ravens podcast. We're on a break at the moment, researching and writing our second series, which will launch in July. To fill the gap, this is one of three little compilation episodes containing three stories from our first series. We've entitled this episode Three Heroes, because it contains three of our tales of heroes and daring do, including our Warwickshire story, Guy of Warwick, our Durham story, the Sockburn Worm, and our Middlesex story, Brutus of Troy and the giant Gog Magog. If you're interested in bonus content and would like access to all of our episodes completely ad-free, then do consider signing up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. And for our archive of all past episodes and expanded information for each episode, please visit our website at Three Ravens podcast. Since the time that God was born and Christendom was established, many adventures have taken place, not all of which are known about yet. Well, when these adventures are recounted, we should learn from them, so that we become wise ourselves and leave ignorance behind. Closer to that time than we are now, there was once an English earl who controlled Warwick. He was rich in gold and silver, but also in friendship. He especially loved horses, and often made gifts of fine stallions to his closest friends. He was generous with rewards, and well known as a fair and just ruler. Now this earl had a daughter, 
and she was as fair as a flower in a meadow. Her eyes were the celestial blue of a summer sky, and her hair was red gold like the sunset on a field of corn. Besides being exceedingly attractive, she was very clever, and had studied with the finest tutors her father's money could buy. She was expert in astronomy, anatomy, and arithmetic. Many men from many lands travelled to Warwick to win her hand in marriage, but none were successful. She turned every last one down. Her name was Felice, and she came to be called Felice the Beautiful, for her good looks surpassed those of all the other local maidens. Unfortunately, her great advantages in life had also given her a great and terrible pride. Nobody who came to woo her was ever good enough for her, not learned enough, not handsome enough, not rich enough, or having accomplished no great deeds. For Lady Felice had read all the romances in French and English and Latin, of course, and she prized a hero above all else. Now, the Earl of Warwick had a steward named Segwit, who was his oldest friend. In their youth, they'd fought many battles together and ridden across many miles of country. But their exploits must sleep until another tale is told, for my story is about Segwit's son. A finer young man could not have been found anywhere. He was kind and strong and handsome and everybody loved him. He was a good swordsman, but he was very capable on horseback, which drew him to the Earl's attention for his excellent riding. The Earl asked this young man to be his cupbearer, and he gladly accepted. At Whitsuntide it was the Earl's habit to hold a huge feast for all the nobles. The long tables groaned with civet of hare, gilded sugar plums and peacocks stuffed with oysters. The knights sat in the great hall, and the ladies were in another chamber. The earl called to the steward's son, whose name was Guy, and instructed him to carry a fine goblet of wine to his daughter in the other room. Well, the moment Guy saw her in her silk gown with her golden hair net, his heart flew towards her like a swallow flying south. The love welling up inside him could not be measured, it seemed to him to be larger than the limit of the world. He did his best to please her, but his hands were trembling and his words were falling over themselves and once he spilled the wine on the floor despite his normally steady hands. The other ladies in the chamber were having a good look at Guy and sent plenty of amorous glances in his direction, but he had no eyes for any of them, for Felice the Beautiful had his heart. After the feast, Guy shut himself up in his chambers in total misery. He closed his shutters and languished in darkness without lighting a single candle. None of his usual activities held any pleasure for him. There was only one star in the heavens for him now, the Lady Felice. Eventually, he resolved to go and speak to her, even if it was the last thing he did. So off he went to Lady Felice's garden where she was tending her physic plants and he proposed to her immediately, just like that. Far from being pleased, Felice was furious. How dare you, she said. You, the son of a mere steward. When I tell my father about this, he'll have you drawn and quartered. Get out of my sight at once or you'll be dead before the next cock crow. Guy was so overwhelmed with sorrow at this rejection that he shut himself away again. He wouldn't eat and he couldn't sleep, and his father and friends were very worried about him. 
Eventually, after weeks of growing thin and pale, he decided there was no point in living at all without Felice's love, so he returned to her garden. Lady Felice, said Guy, you told me that if you saw me again, you'd have me executed. I'm here to say that you must go ahead, since life without your love is no life to me at all. Then he threw himself on the ground in front of her and wept so hard he watered the sun-baked earth. It was hard for Felice not to be a little flattered that this handsome young man would rather die than live without her. She began to feel a bit sorry for him, but she tried to explain, reasonably this time, that because she'd previously rejected knights and earls, she could hardly accept a person like him with no title or good name. If she were to do so, her honour would be no better than mud. Of course, if he were a knight and had proved himself, then it would be easier for her to consider his proposal. Well, Guy leapt up, his tears drying as fast as the hope was budding within him. He knew the Earl of Warwick favoured him, so the very next day he went along to ask the Earl to make him into a knight, and vowed that he would serve him for as long as he lived. The Earl had no objection, for he liked Guy. And soon after, in a great ceremony of purple silk and pearl garlands, Guy became a knight. The Earl presented him with a special gift, a great two-handed sword, which he'd once fought with himself. Look, said Guy to Felice the Beautiful, after the feast which had been held in his honour, I'm a knight! Now, do as you promised! Promised what? said Felice. You may be a knight in name, you've neither jousted or fought with other good warriors. That two-handed sword of yours has never tasted blood or sweat from your grip. How can I give my love to an unproved knight? This was not great news for Guy. He did his best to joust with his new knightly fellows, but they were friendly matches and no real proof of glory. Felice remained aloof, and despite his father's pride and the many expressions of interest Guy received from the other ladies at the Earl's court, he was not satisfied. Now it came to pass that on Dunsmore Heath, a ferocious beast was on the rampage. Sparks flew from its galloping hooves, its eyes were hot coals, it breathed flame, and it mashed its victims into paste with its huge blunt teeth. It was the dread dun cow, and it roamed the heath in search of prey, destroying farmed land and brutalising any person it met. Like so many monsters, the dun cow had once been kind, with a shining white hide and gilded horns. She was big as a house, with eighteen udders, but despite her great size, she'd once befriended the people of Shropshire and freely given a pail of milk to all who needed it. However, a local witch tricked the cow by milking her into a sieve. The sieve could never be filled, and the dun cow's milk ran dry. This made her so angry that she ran from Shropshire into Warwickshire, destroying everything her giant hooves touched. The earl wanted to raise an army against the cow, but the newly knighted Sagai stepped forward and said that he alone would go against the monster. Lady Felice wanted a brave deed performed, and this could be it. The Earl was reluctant, but he eventually agreed. The dun cow led Guy on a madcap chase around the county, 
and even his masterful horsemanship scarcely allowed him to keep up with her. But he wounded her at Mickleton and slowed her down, then tracked the drips of her blood back to Dunsmore Heath, where he cornered her and killed her. In death, the dun cow's face was so sad and peaceful that Guy felt a stab of remorse. A triumphant parade was held in Guy's honour, and all in Warwick celebrated his bravery. All except Felice. When he presented her with one of the dun cow's curling horns, she put it aside disdainfully and told him that one solo deed was not enough to make a hero. At that, Guy went into a kind of frenzy. If he ever heard of anyone being terrorised by a beast, he rode off to dispatch it. He became known the length and breadth of Warwickshire as a monster killer. His fame and renown grew. The few remaining local monsters tacitly agreed to slink off and try their luck elsewhere. I heard of a wyvern who's still skulking in a cave below Gloucester to this day worrying about Guy of Warwick. He slew the boar of Birmingham and the dragon of Dracut in a furious, fiery battle which took off Guy's eyebrows and the dragon's head. He gave Felice a dragon's tooth set with a ruby on a golden chain, but she shut it away in her jewel casket and remarked that people had been slaying dragons since before the time of Brutus, and it was no very special thing. Guy began to despair that she would ever love him, and so he started to accept challenges further away from home in his desperate attempt to impress Felice the Beautiful. It came to pass that King Anlaf of Denmark had been eyeing up England for many years, and he thought he would invade it. He descended with his army to seize it by force. King Athelstan of England, understandably piqued, mustered a huge force of dukes, earls, barons and wealthy lords at Winchester, and all the priests and bishops assembled too to pray against the invasion. But Anlaf of Denmark had a secret weapon. He'd brought with him a giant called Colbrand, immensely strong and merciless, more feared in battle than a hundred knights. Unless Athelstan agreed to pay tribute to Denmark every year, Colbrand would destroy England. That is, unless an English warrior could defeat him in single combat. Well, Guy knew that this was the challenge meant to make his name, and he rode to Winchester at once. They faced each other down, Guy and Colbrand, and at first sight they seemed hopelessly outmatched. Colbrand had a huge amount of arms and armour with him all piled onto a cart. He was thirteen feet tall, and his battle-axe had gruesome spikes protruding from it that would bite into steel like a knife sliding through butter. The battle lasted for hours, with neither tiring. Several times Guy thought he nearly had Colbrand except for that he couldn't reach the giant's head. His two-handed sword was long, but he still couldn't reach higher than the giant's shoulder. Dancing around Colbrand, Guy moved in circles as quickly as he could, bewildering the heavy giant. As the sun set on the battle, Guy was able to get behind Colbrand and into his cart of spare weapons. Putting all his strength into lifting it, he stole one of the giant's axes. It was much longer than Guy's sword, and with the axe he was able to reach up and give Colbrand such a massive blow on the back of his neck that his head fell off. With the last of the day's light, 
Guy thought he saw a look of lingering sorrow in the giant's dead eyes. The Danes were mortified that their champion was dead, and King Anlaf and his men made their way in great sadness back to their ships and sailed home. King Athelstan was grateful enough to reward Guy with fine lands, and Guy of Warwick's fame spread throughout England. By now he was receiving all kinds of proposals of marriage and invitations to the best baronies in the land. But Guy had loyalty to none other than his first friend, the Earl of Warwick, and eyes for no woman but Felice. Surely now I've done everything you wanted, said Guy, when he gave her the giant Colbrand's girdle. Felice could see that he truly was the best and bravest of all knights, and she finally relented. They were married, and Felice the Beautiful was smugly happy in the knowledge that she had the prize all England coveted for her own. The wedding feast lasted fourteen days and nights, with minstrels singing beautifully and gifts for all the townsfolk from Sir Guy of Warwick and his self-satisfied bride. But even amid all this celebration, and even after their bodies met under the bedsheets, Guy was not perfectly happy. Even as he looked at Felice with her red-gold hair clothing her in light, he could not stop thinking about the creatures he had slain. Over the ensuing weeks, a single-minded conviction took hold of Guy. He had to make amends. He told Felice that he was going to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Take my two-handed sword, he said. Keep it safe for my son. Felice was incandescent with rage. Her idea of life as the wife of the celebrated Guy of Warwick did not include a husband who was absent. She tried every tactic she could think of to change his mind, one moment screaming, the next crying, then smothering Guy with kisses, then insulting him. Guy resisted all these manoeuvres and prepared to depart for Jerusalem. When it came to parting, Felice was sorrowful, regretting her hasty words. She gave him a golden ring with a secret inscription inside to remember her by, and Guy promised to return to her. With that he set off, speaking to nobody and travelling incognito so that nobody could ask him to slay anything. On his way to Jerusalem he visited many other holy places where saints were honoured, as many as he could, for seven long years. In Guy's absence, Felice became very charitable, building many abbeys and caring for the poor. She never laughed again, but she had a beautiful son who grew strong and courageous in his father's image. Guy did eventually return to England, but by that time he was tired and ill, and his adventuring days were over. He made it almost as far as Warwick, to a place called Gibcliffe, and there he rested in the cave of a hermit. While he was there, he had a dream that St. Michael came to him, wearing his feathered armour and holding a two-handed sword which looked much like Guy's own. He told Guy that he had only eight days left to live. Guy was grateful to God's friend for the warning and sent the hermit to Felice with the gold lover's ring she'd given him. When the hermit presented Felice with the ring, she was glad and sad at the same time. She rode to Gibcliffe as fast as she could with her young son and arrived only just in time. Guy was beyond words by this point, but he kissed her in farewell 
and put his hand on his son's head in blessing, and then he died. When his soul had departed, it turned into a white dove and flew up to heaven on the shoulder of St. Michael, for Guy had atoned for all his years of violence. And Felice regretted that she kept urging him on to further deeds and had so foregone many years of happiness which might have been. Guy's fame endures and his tale is still told, and now it belongs to you. South of Darlington, at the point of the River Tees' northernmost meander, there's a ruined place that was long ago known as the village of Storkburn. Nobody lives there now, only hints remain that it was ever a village at all. A few boulders, a ruined church, an 18th century farmhouse. Then, high above it all, there's a neo-Jacobean country house once owned by the Conyers family. The wind whips through the vales and down the river there, weathering the old stones. Just as the name of Storkburn was weathered away by lazy tongues. First Storkburn became Sockburn, then Sockburn became nothing at all. Only once, long ago, Sockburn was famous. A holy place and a cultural centre for Anglo-Saxon settlers. It was there in 780 that Higbald was crowned Bishop of Lindisfarne. It's from Higbald's letters that we know of those first Viking raids that changed English history forever. In 796, it was the place where Eanbold was crowned Archbishop of York, the same Eanbold who first introduced Roman Catholicism to that ancient city. To this day, in and around the ruins of Sockburn Church, between the long grass, the scrub and the undergrowth, there are hints of this past glory. Nestled in the weeds, you can find elaborately carved hogback tombs etched from granite. They were once intricately engraved with carved shingles on either side of their peaked, chiselled roofs. These rare houses for the dead are each a mead hall through which their occupants might access Valhalla. Hogback tombs are found in Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Northern England and Cornwall, anywhere Vikings sailed and settled. They have stood for a thousand years, with many adorned with massive end beasts, just like the longships that brought their occupants all those years ago. Yet the mythical monsters that ornament these graves weren't always beings of imagination. Some of the folk at rest in those tombs battled and bested those creatures, earning themselves the glory of being memorialised in stone. One such warrior rests in a weathered hogback tomb at Sockburn. A hero who founded a long line of soldiers, statesmen and rebels. The last of their line died in a Victorian poorhouse 
emaciated and insane. But centuries earlier, one of their number, Sir John Conyers, rebelled against Edward IV during the War of the Roses. He became an outlaw king, renaming himself Robin of Reedsdale, leading armies in defiance of the crown. And when Sir John was slain, his brother Charles took up the mantle of Robin of Reedsdale, creating a new legend that Robin of Reedsdale had the power to rise from the dead. Long before that, Sockburn had faced a wilier foe even than a Yorkist king. For out of the River Tees, for hundreds of years, creatures would hatch and emerge and wreak havoc on that rolling landscape. Poison-breathing beasts that crawled on their bellies, slithering through fields and hiding in woodlands. At night, from the shadows, as these creatures grew, they would emerge, hiding beneath the cover of darkness, their oily scales twinkling in the moonlight. They would feast on and savage anything they could find, men, children, sheep, even one another. Then they would retreat to the safety of the forest's maze-like greenery, or slide back into the lapping calm of the water's edge. It was rare for one of these creatures to grow large enough to reproduce. Their hunger was such that often they starved to death. Yet, when a worm became large enough to spawn, it would retreat back to the water, seeding offspring like a larval insect. Indeed, the oldest and mightiest of these creatures would grow wings, some strong enough they might even take flight, with worms harrying villages across Bernicia for hundreds of years. To protect themselves, the ancient peoples of what has since become Durham had known what to do. They would fish the rivers, hunting out the young worms and bashing their skulls to pieces with rocks on the riversides. Yet the flesh made for bad eating, and the blood of the creatures was poisonous. If it slipped into waterways, then the ground would turn toxic. Crops would fail, forcing families and sometimes whole townships to move on. For this reason, the bodies of the creatures were burned on funeral pyres all through the summer months, black smoke rising high through the clear, warm air. When raiders came across the whale road from Scandinavia, these new arrivals didn't know about the worms. As years passed and summer raiding gave way to settling, the Vikings who came to England presumed that those villages which vanished, the families that disappeared, must have been slain by local people, Northumbrian war bands wisely hostile to insurgents from afar. Yet some of these settlers clung on. Some ventured inland following the waterways, settling where springs saw holy water bubbling and springing up from the earth. Sockburn was just such a place.
a settlement where black eagles hunted from above and a sacred well drew people together. Clay huts were built, wooden walls and palisades erected, crops planted. Sheep and cattle were raised to graze on the mineral-rich floodplains nearby, and the town became rich. The men who ruled places like Sockburn had to be wise. This earned them names, titles to go by, and so it was that the widowed king, Johannes of Sockburn, who had been chosen to rule and who'd had gold and silver minted in his name, became Johannes the Cunning. It was he who raised a mead hall at Sockburn, where the fires burned bright and the drink flowed fast, glinting like gold in the broad hearth's glow. Wise as he was, though, Johannes failed to see how mischief could grow into disaster and how disaster could undo all the good work he and his people had accomplished. It started with small things. Shepherds losing a lamb here, a foal there. Fish stocks suddenly dropped. Then the river started to ripple with strange, stinking eels. Johannes instructed his people to catch the creatures and burn them. But his sole surviving son, Leif, thought the whole thing was just a game. Not yet ten years old, Leif had never known war or hardship, and one day he caught one of the wriggling creatures in his net, dropping the stinking beast into the holy well out of jest. Leif thought the whole thing was just a lark, that one of the women would go to draw water and have a shot. But in doing what he did, the half-orphaned boy spelled disaster for all he knew. For though the river was dredged of wriggling worms, their bodies burned in crackling pyres that sent up ribbons of black, acrid smoke, deep in the earth of the holy well, Leif's mischief grew and grew, nestling safely in the quiet earth. Before long, the losses became worse. Livestock brought inside the village walls by night started to panic. Pigs would squeal, horses kicking at the wood of their stables. Watchmen keeping guard from the palisades came to hear the sounds of slaughter coming from inside their own barns. They rushed to see what was happening, their guard dogs barking and straining at their leads. Yet they always arrived too late, unfailingly finding grisly scenes of devastation and slaughter. They saw blood, torn flesh, broken bones, gouges made by needle-sharp teeth and monstrous claws. Then, all around the clearly mutilated animals, other beasts would have perished too, as if struck down by the shock or some form of invisible plague. The travelling monks... 
the travelling monks who once came to Sockburn to seek its waters started to avoid it. They prayed, offered totems, icons and spells, but nothing seemed to work. No one could understand what was happening, and panic started to rise. The people of Sockburn knew of wolves, bears, foxes, wild dogs, knew the marks of their teeth and how to defend against them. But this new menace was something different. An invisible foe, none that... An invisible foe, one that moved like darkness, striking wherever firelight failed to touch. Johannes the Cunning appealed for calm. He had patrols doubled, told his people to shelter in the mead hall. He visited the blacksmith and commissioned the village a new blade. This weapon, he said, should be a sun-bright falchion, with which he, the leader of his people, would slay their unkillable foe. As the blacksmith set to work, folding fresh steel with the skills of a master craftsman, each hammer blow echoed in young Leaf's mind. The boy's guilt was growing like an afternoon shadow, stretching and obscuring, darkening him from head to toe. His joke had grown into something terrible, a jest mutating into a menacing, nameless horror that laughed at the one who told it. Then the villagers started falling ill. They didn't know, could never have guessed, that it was the very water they were drinking that was killing them, that the once holy resource had turned profane, tainted by the shadow growing in its midst. The animals died first. Then, as men, women and children grew sicker and weaker, most becoming too feeble to rise from their beds, Johannes took a band of his finest warriors and rode out to nearby communities seeking aid. Yet, word had travelled. Sockburn was cursed, afflicted with a plague, a wasting disease with teeth and claws rising like a demon of old. None of the neighbouring kings opened their doors to Johannes. They feared the illness would spread, harrowing their own people. So it was that Johannes the Cunning came to look inward, considering ways in which he might hope to catch a fiend nobody could even see. When Johannes and his men returned home, he found Sockburn just a shadow of its former self. His people were either dead or dying, most too sick to dig the graves in which they might bury their friends. He found his son weeping in the mead hall, cowering behind the throne, ready to confess to his crime. And when Johannes learned of Leif's folly, he understood what had to be done, binding the boy in a solemn vow. 
Johannes had all of his people moved or carried outside of the village walls. Signal fires were lit, his ailing folk sheltering for warmth in a ring of flames surrounding their now emptied village. Then Johannes had the fires of each home extinguished, keeping even the ashes of the mead hall cold. When he went to visit the blacksmith, Johannes found the old craftsman dead at his forge. Yet the sword was finished, a gold-bright blade with which a king might fight to save his people. So it was that Johannes the Cunning took his seat on his throne, his falchion in his hand, all around him bathed in darkness. As his eyes adjusted to the gloom, he thought back through the events of his life, of the good times and the bad, of his lost love, his wife, who had perished bringing leaf into the world. Smiling, he imagined what it would be like to see her again, to be reunited with all those he'd lost at Woden's eternal feast. Before long, though, Johannes was roused from his reverie. He heard the creature moving. It scuttled and slithered through the dark, moving through empty barns and hollow houses, knocking over chairs and surging over tables. He could hear the beast's claws rattling as it moved listened to it hissing as it neared the edge of the village walls and the fires crackling outside. In time, of course, the beast moved inwards. It searched like a spiral out from the darkest edges and in ever closer towards the community's heart to the building in which there had always before been a fire burning, the brightest of blazes. Yet, that night, there was only darkness in the Mead Hall, darkness obscuring a single heartbeat and a single point of warmth. The Sockburn Worm came in through the great wooden doors of the Mead Hall, which Johannes had left open, and, as it did, Johannes the Cunning tried his best to keep still. The starlight bounced from the creature's oily scales, and the stink of it was choking, heady, making Johannes' eyes water. He saw the monster's eyes glinting, bright as pearls, and as the worm drew close, rearing up to attack, Johannes leapt to his feet, roaring and dashing backwards, darting behind his throne. Startled, the beast hissed, its stubby wings unfurling, beating the air and sending a smoke-like cloud billowing through the room. The green-black haze, noxious and thick, caused Johannes to stumble, just as the worm darted around behind the throne, gnashing its rows of sharp, needle-like teeth. 
The creature caught Johannes in its jaws, biting and holding him fast, but the King of Sockburn raised his gold-bright blade and rained blows onto his scaly foe. He stabbed and slashed, pummeled and kicked, and the worm released its quarry, surprised at this barrage of new sensations. The creature's first feelings of pain. By now, Johannes knew he was slain. His wounds reeked, his mind was reeling, his eyes rolling back in his head. Staggering, falling, blood dripping from his chest, he half-crawled, half-ran, rushing to the door of the mead hall. Then, as he reached the huge wooden barriers, he tossed his sword through the gap and closed the doors, locking himself inside. His last sight through the gap was his son, out in the darkness, waiting. Leif held a torch in his hand, the flames flickering, showing his boyish face. The look he bore, Johannes thought, was one of sadness and loss. It made him look so much like his mother. Then... With the doors closed, Leif did as his father had made him promise he would. Trying to ignore the screams inside, he ran with the torch, lifting it here and there, lighting the thatch of the mead hall. Once he'd lit each of the four corners, his face wet with tears, the whole building seemed entirely ablaze. Then he picked up his father's sword and walked back out to the people of Sockburn, unable to watch as his father and the Sockburn worm disappeared under fire and ash. Time passed as it's wont to do, and Sockburn recovered. The spring again ran pure, and Leaf grew into a man. New people came. Animals thrived, and each summer eels were caught and burned. Out of the ruins of the mead hall, bones had been recovered. Those of Johannes, which were laid in an intricately carved grave with a dragon's head at one end, and those of the worm, which were sealed under a huge grey stone as a reminder of the dangers that threatened to spring from below. Honours were showered on the people of Sockburn, and king after king honoured the people of that holy place. As the weathering winds blew, Johannes the Cunning became Johannes the Coiner, and Johann... As the weathering... As the weathering winds blew, Johannes the Cunning became Johann the Coiner, and Johann the Coiner became John Conyers. Little more than two hundred years later, a son of a son of a son of a king presented a battered falchion to the newly crowned Prince Bishop of Durham. To this day, when a new bishop takes office in Durham, that same sword is presented to them, along with these words. 
my Lord Bishop, I hereby present you with the falchion wherewith the champion Conyers slew the worm, dragon, or fiery flying serpent which destroyed man, woman, and child, in memory of which the king then reigning gave him the manor of Sockburn, to hold by this tenure that upon the first entrance of every bishop into the county the falchion should be presented. The falchion is kept in the treasury of Durham Cathedral and is on display in a case in a dimly lit chamber. You can go and see it if you like. It's 35 inches long, weighs almost three pounds, and its pommel is engraved with a black eagle. The blade is decorated with dragon motifs and is strangely corroded and bent from use. The last time a worm hatched in County Durham and lived long enough to terrorise the people was at Lambton, almost 40 miles away, during the times of the Crusades. Others terrorised Fatfield at Worm Hill and Penshaw, where a monument stands in memory to those it slew. As for the graves at Sockburn, they are still there to see that of Johannes and the Sockburn Worm, all but side by side, although few go by these days, save the winds which roll off the river and tease at the ends of the hissing grass. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. These days, Britain is the best of islands, as everybody knows. Its rivers are abundant with fish. Its forest glades grow flowers of every color. Its meadows are green with grass and its skies alive with birdsong. But Britain was once wild and empty, lashed by rain from every side and bogged down with thick, muddy slurry. Nobody at all lived here, and even the birds gave its frowning black clouds a wide berth. It was not until Albina and her sisters came and dug their blood-stained hands into its claggy soil that Britain started to become the pleasant land we know today. Let me tell you about Albina. She was the eldest of 50 sisters, and while that may seem like a lot to you now, let me tell you that it was far more common then before the days of libraries and other such excellent distractions. 
Now these sisters were the daughters of the king of Syria, and they all have fine qualities and skills in all sorts of areas. Kings were very headstrong back then, and were often in the habit of making decisions for other people without consulting their feelings. Nowadays, kings are much calmer sorts of beings and can usually be placated with a nice quiche. But the king of Syria wasn't interested in quiche. He was interested in power and in making the right alliances. So he determined to marry all 50 of his daughters off to influential people of his choosing, all on the same day, for he was strong-willed, determined, and also extremely good at planning. While the palace was all in a bustle, sewing seed pearls to 50 silk veils and trying to work out how to support the weight of a 50-tier wedding cake, Albina and her sisters gathered in secret for a council. I don't think we can cancel the wedding, said Justina reasonably. The invitations have been sent out and it would be a shame after all the hard work everybody's put into it. We've never even met these men, said Tristina, bursting into tears. They might be horrible. The sisters discussed it for hours, and I'm not sure quite how they reached this conclusion, but they decided that the best course of action would be to go through with the wedding, marry the men, and then murder them all in bed on the wedding night. That way, everybody in the kingdom could still enjoy the party, and they'd all still be free. Even their father couldn't complain, said Georgina, because they would inherit all the husband's worldly goods anyway. It would be doing everybody a favour. The wedding day came and the bells were rung and the sisters curled their eyelashes and tied their garters and stuffed their faces with wedding cake and danced the night away. And then, in the early hours of the next morning, when their new husbands were snoring beside them, they each took out a jewelled hairpin and stabbed their hapless men through the heart. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the move was less popular in Syria than the sisters had anticipated. The king wrung his hands and the courtiers protested and the people rioted in the streets. It was hard to save face after what had happened, so the poor king thought that the best thing to do was set Albina and the rest of his daughters off in a boat and forbid them to ever return to Syria. And he did keep all the dead husband's worldly goods after all, so in time he recovered from the whole unfortunate episode. You may be thinking that the sisters didn't stand much of a chance, having very little seafaring experience. But they took to it well, and were soon enough plotting their course by the stars, and reading the winds, and fishing for great swordfish and salting them in barrels. In some little while, they arrived on the shores of Britain, which they named Albion after their eldest sister, and travelled about until they found a nice place to settle. It was somewhere near the area we call Surrey today, for the sisters called it Little Syria in honour of their home, and it's been abbreviated and mispronounced ever since. Well, they did wonders for getting everything going in Albion. They cut trees and built halls and homesteads. They captured the wild cattle and ponies and farmed them. They made their own laws and lived the way they chose. Some of the sisters went off to found their own settlements, but each traded with the other using money made from stones with holes in them. If you look into streams and shallows today, you may still see them, those coins of Albina and the first women. There started to be a slight feeling of loneliness and worry for the future, since all the women were sisters and nobody was getting any younger and backs and knees were starting to go and they were running out of options. 
So Albina and the others gathered together for another council. We should take the boats and sail to another land, said Sabrina, who was the chief boat builder and responsible for all Albion's bridges and dams. We could conquer France, said Martina, hopefully. She was in charge of Albion's armies, training the sisters for battle, and she was always talking about conquering France. It may be that her spirit lived on in many later English kings. Florentina thought that they should train the beasts of Albion to talk and work for them, and Valentina thought that they should send out letters summoning men to the island. There were many more ideas too, and again I'm not quite sure how they reached this conclusion, but they decided that the best course of action would be to gather in one of their great stone circles and summon up a demon. This demon's name was Leonard, and he was very interested to hear about the sister's little problem. You see... Leonard and his various friends and cousins had been rather lonely too. The demons were not altogether the picture of chivalry. Some had wings and some had tails and some were mostly composed of knees apart from the bits which mattered. But they were good for a laugh and eager to please and that was all that was important really. They made many visits popping into Albion through the stone circle and to all reports it was an arrangement which satisfied everybody. Sooner rather than later, Albina and her sisters welcomed the pitter-patter of small feet, which became larger and larger feet as the years went on. Sometimes that's what happens when demons and people have fun together. They create descendants who are larger than life. That's right, the sisters' offspring were all giants. But let's spin forward through time a little while, years after Albina first peered into the extra-long cradle of her enormous baby and gaze into the destiny of another baby, one who was born to be a hero. The soothsayer peered at the child's mother's belly, dangling a strange talisman over it. Well, said the proud father-to-be anxiously, what'll it be? Oh, a boy, certainly, said the soothsayer as the talisman span and danced on its chain. Well, everybody was very happy and the soothsayer really should have left it there. But for some reason he carried on talking and went on to prophesy that the baby boy would be the death of both of his parents, would wander through many lands and eventually become the father of a nation. There is such a thing as too much information and it's fair to say that the soothsayer was not seen around anymore. The baby was born and they named him Brutus. But his mother did not live to see his first sunset, so that was one part of the prophecy fulfilled. His father kept a close eye on him for 15 years. But one day, when he and Brutus were out hunting, Brutus mistakenly shot his father, believing him to be a stag. After that, his relations thought it was high time Brutus started fulfilling the next part of the prophecy and wandering to many lands, preferably those as far as possible away from theirs, and they exiled him without further delay. Brutus wandered for many moons, and he grew great in strength and in nobility. He freed his Trojan ancestors from slavery by the unscrupulous Greeks and built himself an army. He solved land disputes, he enchanted princesses with his skillful swordsmanship, he rescued stranded kittens from trees. One of the Trojans he'd emancipated was named Corineus, and this man became Brutus's greatest friend. 
They had many escapades together, and their bonds strengthened because neither truly had anywhere to call home. One day, Brutus and Corineus were engaged in manly pursuits, shooting, hunting, braiding each other's hair, when they came upon a deserted city. The buildings were all in ruins, except for a temple to Diana. The friends had the inspiration to pray to the goddess, so they poured libations and called to her as the hope of all who ride in the wild woodlands to guide them to a safe haven they might call home. The goddess appeared before them with her silver hunting bow bent bright like the moon's crescent, and she told them of an island surrounded by sea, now the home of bloodthirsty giants, where Brutus could make a second Troy and rule it as its king. Well, Brutus and Corineus called to their forces, and they set sail right away in search of the island Diana had promised. There were no compasses in Brutus's youth, so they managed to visit Africa, Aquitaine and Andorra before eventually sighting the green and misty shores of Albion, where they sailed straight up the River Dart and landed at Totnes. If you go to Totnes today, you can still see the stone touched by Brutus's toe as he jumped ashore. All was going very well as Brutus, Corineus and their forces made their way northeast from Totnes, exploring the apparently empty land Diana had directed them towards. But Albion was not available to anybody who cared to claim it. It was inhabited by the giants, the descendants of Albina and her sisters and their demon lovers. And Brutus found this out one night when he'd made camp and a monstrous giant came crashing through the tents, crushing soldiers under his size 19 boots and roaring with rage. Brutus and Corineus realised that they had a rather large problem on their hands. The giants weren't too keen on the arrival of the Trojans either. When the news of their landing was brought to the Council of Giants, there was a great uproar amongst them. Oh, get into our stores and nibble all our cheeses, said the giant Brackenbog, who imagined the Trojans to be something like mice. Oh, recap us with your nasty little clubs, said the giant Frogenhog. Come down, said the king of the giants, whose name was Gogmagog. He was the grandson of Albina herself, and he was particularly repulsive in appearance, being covered from head to foot in thick grey-green hair. These giants, rather like their grandmothers, were not known for the quality of their decision-making, and they hadn't reached any kind of positive agreement before a challenge arrived in handwriting which seemed to the giants to be excessively and awkwardly small. Pass me my glasses, said Gogmagog, and proceeded to read out the challenge. Brutus of Troy called the giants to a wrestling match between their champion and his, with the winner declared king of the land once and for all. Some of the giants were worried, thinking it must be a trap, but Gogmagog scoffed at the thought of wrestling Brutus or one of his tiny friends. After all, how could he possibly lose? The day set for the wrestling match arrived. The giants gathered, drumming tree branches on the ground and howling, and the Trojans gathered too. Brutus's old friend Corineus was their champion, 
for he was the best wrestler among them all. He was on the pitch early, limbering up, doing his stretches. Gogmagog showed up 15 minutes late with a horn of mead. What did I miss? he said, scoffing at Corydeus. This, he thought, would be an easy win. Fifteen seconds later, the giant was lying in a puddle of spilt mead as Corineus had easily toppled him with a blow to the back of his ankle. Realising that it might not be quite so simple as he'd hoped, Gogmagog roared in fury and surged into action. The contest began in earnest. The two champions rushed towards each other, grabbing each other in a tight hold. Gogmagog used all his strength and broke three of Corineus's ribs, and gave him a fair few bruises too. Brutus, watching the fight and fearing for his best friend's life, closed his eyes and said a prayer to Diana, asking her for her aid. In a voice like the silken whisper of an arrow flying past your ear, the goddess spoke to him, telling him not to be afraid. She was as good as her word. There seemed suddenly to be a silver light about Corineus which flashed in his eyes and outlined his muscular limbs. He heaved the giant Gogmagog up on his shoulders and ran as fast as he could to the edge of the cliff nearby. There he hurled the giant down onto the sharp reef of rocks below. The seas below the cliff ran greenish-grey with the giant king's blood as his body was dashed into a thousand pieces. That place is still called Gogmagog's Leap to this very day. The giants were defeated, and that is how Brutus of Troy became king of the land once and for all. The land which had been Albion was renamed after him, and it's still called Britain to this day. Those Trojans who had travelled and fought alongside Brutus began calling themselves Britons, and even their language, which was a sort of crooked combination of Trojan and Greek, was now the British tongue. As for his dear friend Corineus, Brutus rewarded him by giving him the southernmost tip of Britain to rule as his own, and from then on that place has been named Cornwall, after the hero who defeated the giant Gogmagog. Brutus travelled the length and breadth of his new land searching for a suitable spot to make his capital. At last he came to the banks of the River Thames in the heart of Middlesex, and there the goddess Diana appeared to him and he knew he'd found the right place. He built his great city there and called it New Troy, which name it was known by until the days of Lud. But that's another story. And in time, the remaining giants who were the descendants of Albina and the friends of Brutus who'd been Trojans all settled down with each other. Over time, their tallness has mostly been bred out of them, although every so often one comes along who grows over six foot five. There's the music of my story. Long may it last in peaceful harmony. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean man With a down, derry, 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 down, down